again, Internet, and welcome to the Midfield Monitor Podcast. Uh, as always, I'm your host, Benny. I'm the owner, producer, mixing engineer, and consumer of coffee over at Trace Paper Productions. So today on the podcast, we have Mr. Tyler and Mr. Eli, uh, the fancy gentlemen of Cities You Wish You Were From. How you guys doing? We're not that fancy, are we? I don't, I'm wearing joggers right now. That's not fancy. You're wearing joggers. <laughs> <laughs> From Sweden, Sweden joggers. Now your your uh, your album cover was awfully fancy, though. So that's that's fair. That enough. was that is true. That's what you get when you hire a professional to take pictures. <laughs> is that a Russian Circle shirt? Yes, Let's it start is. There. Fucking love that band. I love them too. Very hard. There, I I was so fucking bummed. I missed them like last Friday. They played. are you recording this? You should be recording. Oh, this, this is yeah. We're we're going. Always be recording. They played with Chelsea. What's her face? Chelsea Wolf. Yeah. Handler? No, that would have been great if Chelsea Handler did like an hour of stand up. <laughs> She's like, "Here's what we're gonna do. I'm gonna do an hour of stand up, and then Russian Circles is gonna play." <laughs> play. This is a really odd night, but I'm into it. No, I really wanted. I hit up Eventbrite because they wanted us to play a couple shows for them, and I was like, "We'd love to open for Chelsea Wolf and Russian Circles." They're like, yeah, they don't play with anybody. They they're not they're not a supporting sort of play. I thought that was unfortunate. That would have been a great show. I feel like we could have done them justice too, sort of. I think so. That would yeah. that would be. I think that would be a that'd be a pretty dynamic bill. Yeah, we'd be we'd definitely be the warm up for that <laughs> bill. <laughs> yeah, they they go to they go hard. I I I've seen that band probably six or seven times now, and every time I. It's like so fucking stoked on it. So um, I kind of wanted to get into a few things with you guys, and uh, I guess I kind of wanted to start with like where you guys met, like how like how you guys became a band. Because um, I mean, Tyler and I have you know some history together musically. Um, yeah, and well, you know, I mean, we do we do what we can. <laughs> things happen. Things happen. The road's a crazy place. <laughs> <laughs> the, the road. If the, if you mean from uh, if you mean from the practice space to to Midtown, that was a lot. But a lot can be done in a few miles, I guess. <laughs> crazy shit has happened in less amount of time and space. Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, but yeah, so I mean, guess to my knowledge, back in uh, back in the the olden days when Tyler and I were doing the thing, I was never aware of you, Eli. Um, so how long have you guys been kind of? In each other's radar, I suppose. What do you think? How many years has it been now? So we met in 2013. Yeah, that sounds about right. And the only reason I know that is because I just updated my resume, so I know. Yeah, we met at work. We met at work. Oh, okay. And, and it was it was interesting because I was in talking. So we worked in different departments, but on the same floor. And so I was in talking to to Eli's uh, supervisor. And he was like, oh, I heard you you play music. And I was like, yeah, I do. You know, whatever. I was in a band at the time. Uh, the band after the band that we were in band. Okay. And uh, and I was like, yeah. And we talked about music for a little bit. And he was like, well, apparently you have to be in a band to be in my department because two guys in my department are, are in a band. And I was like, oh, really? And I already met one of them. And he was like, well, you have to meet, you have to meet Elijah. And I was like, okay. So it was a, a while because uh, for his job, he's on the road a lot. Mm. Um, so... He he was in the office one day, so I went in and was talking to him, and obviously we talked about gear, and he showed me his then-band, Eli and the Sound Colt, and I listened to it, and the next day I went to his cubicle and was like, 
this is fucking <laughs> really good. And, you know, because every time you hear, like, somebody's band that you know, it's always disappointing. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And, yeah, and you have to do that that, that wonderful, awkward thing where you're like, yeah, it's great, dude. I like oh, it. Oh, man, this it's so, so bad. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's so good. But anyway, so I think I actually thanked you at, at a you certain did. point. I was like, thank you for not being shitty and for <laughs> making me say something awkward, like, oh, it's really good. So I really liked that. And then so we my band opened up for that band for a show. And then he was like, well, we're looking for another guitar player. And I was mainly guitar at the time. And he was like, why don't you come and play? And so I did. And so I played in Eli and the Sound Cult for, for a little bit. And then uh, we took, <laughs> and then we, the and then we took a little bit of a hiatus. I got kicked out of the band. <laughs> kicked Tyler out of the first band. Yeah, I was kicked out because I wasn't available enough. Which I understood. I wasn't. I wasn't pissed about it. I was hurt, but I wasn't pissed. And then uh, a couple years went by, and we we kept in touch for for a while. And he texted me one day and was like, "Hey, I just wrote all these songs," um, and I was like, "Cool, send them to me." <laughs> and so I listened to him and he was like, yeah, I think I just want to be a two piece, you know, me and a drummer. And I was like, well, I kind of play drums. And he was like, oh, cool. And then we didn't talk about it for a while. And then I was like, I need to come play drums for this. And he was like, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, so yeah, I, yeah I, was actually, I was actually going to ask you about that. So, I mean, um, you know, in our in our his musical past, you've always been on guitar and but you've always you've always, you know, had your finger on the pulse of playing drums uh you always yeah i mean i know you you always had kits and were always playing when did you uh kind of pick that up again because as i assume in the in your pre in the other band as well you were you were on guitar also right oh yeah 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 no i've always fancied myself as as a guitar player and only until recently have i actually thought of myself as a drummer but i've always had drummer envy right <laughs> i always think the drummer is the coolest part of the band um, and, and, uh, very true to our latest or last Instagram post, all the drummers in bands are my heroes. Like when I think about my favorite people in bands, they're always the drummers. Um, and I started playing drums when I was a kid, but, uh, but very, uh, tertiary to first of all, baseball and secondly, guitar. Um, but it was always my favorite. It was like almost like a guilty pleasure, but I always thought that it was going to be too difficult. You know what I mean? Like all, all the guys that I, that I loved were just, their talent level was just sky high. So I didn't ever think I could do that. So it wasn't really until I, I decided that I needed to do this, that I even thought I could play drums in a band. And, and I think that that's, that's what happened. And then I became obsessive and now I'm like a mediocre drummer. <laughs> <laughs> oh, fair enough. Um, so, uh, now, Eli, you've had definitely, uh, I guess, your 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 musical past is pretty deep rooted in the Sacramento area as well, right? Yeah, I mean, more or less. I when I came when I moved to Sacramento in two thousand four, um, I wasn't playing music anymore. I was in bands through high school and college, and in college, I was in a, a pretty popular band that did a little road work and. Um, and then when that band ended, um, I, I sort of lost my taste for it because you hustle for so long and um, and we pushed really hard and then it didn't 
sort of pan out the way we'd hoped. So I moved here and did a number of other things. Uh, I actually sold all my guitars except one. I had a, uh, probably enough equipment to build a recording studio. Sold all of that before I moved to Sacramento. And then... Um, and then my kid was born and I started and, and sold a, a small publishing company. And then when that sort of petered out, um, I sort of got the, the bug again. Yeah. And started Eli and the Sound Cult, uh, met my then bassist and we toured a lot, uh, met Tyler, got Tyler, fired Tyler. Um, and then, um, but Eli and the Sound Cult was weird because it, started at a time when Sacramento was still pretty small and what we were doing was sort of weird and it was unapologetically weird. And so that was like the main thing that I learned about, especially the Sacramento scene is if you're going to do something in Sacramento, um, it's not so much doing something new, it's doing something and not, and and not making excuses for it. This town has a radar for genuine people Totally. Um, and so if you're really, really genuine, like my favorite bands here, uh, Destroy Boys, Sun Valley Gun Club, Drug Apartments, um, they're all Rituals of Mine, they're Sparks Across Darkness, um, God, it just goes on, uh, Shotgun Sawyer, I won't list all of the people that I love in town, but they're all very, very genuine, heartfelt musicians, and they don't fuck around. Um, in so much as they're not trying to, they're not trying to, uh, put on, uh, put on airs. And so when Eli and the Sound Cult sort of started petering out, um, I realized what I really, really wanted to do was just make really loud rock music again, which is sort of what I did in college. And by virtue of my, I don't know my impatient nature. I don't think that it would, I don't think it's a stretch to say that I'm an impatient person. (laughs) Right. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I, I didn't really have the wherewithal to handle more than working with more than one other person. And, uh, and so, and I was a huge fan of local age. I was a huge fan of Japan droids of, uh, the 68. And so I knew that uh, you could get a big sound from two people and so when I started researching that, I was like, okay, all I need is uh, a drummer that I get along with that can that can put together a steady beat. Like I don't need um, I don't need an aficionado. I don't need an avant-garde drummer. Um, and I started working with. I, I think I talked to Tyler, and you're right. I I sent you some stuff. We had beers, and then we didn't talk for a really long time. And in that interim. I went out to all the drummers that I knew in town that were working and touring drummers and they would all come out and they just, it was either they did too much and I'm like, dude, just fucking calm down. Like, stop, calm down, take a deep breath. Like, I don't need like crazy ass fills. Um, or I don't need, I, I can't follow you. Like you have to follow me. And that's a weird dynamic in a band, but it's a necessity when when the lead singer is also like the main songwriter and you're a two man band. So, um, and then the other, that was 50%. The other 50%, they're really nice guys. I just was like, I couldn't be in a van with you for months. And that's, that's the goal that we're aiming at. So, um, and then I think we had beers again and I told Tyler, okay, come on out. And I had like a little Gretsch kit and he came out 
and I'd made music with Tyler before. We'd also made like he'd come over to my studio once and we made we like wrote a post rock song just for fun. And so we knew we got along really well. And then I was like, I played him, I think the four or five songs that I had and we just breezed through them. And I was like, oh, well, that was easy. Like, yes, of course, this this makes perfect sense. Right. In large part, because we're a two man band. So we still do this. Like I can look at him and I can and we can communicate like where we're going with a song um, and and sort of we can raise energy or lower energy or, you know, we can work with dynamics. So, um, yeah, they, and, and I knew that, I also knew that Tyler was obsessive about it. And I think one of the first things I asked you is I said, well, you know, this is going to be a road band. And you were like, yep, I'm ready this time. And I was like, okay, good. Cause I got a van. We're going to fucking, <laughs> you know, and we have, we've been on the road. Yeah. You guys we have, do a lot of road work. So yeah, you guys are in and out of town quite a bit. Yeah, this is actually a. It's weird because we released an album, and this is a slow year for us. But um, it's by virtue of us doing a lot of promotion for the album, and working with a new manager, and sort of building momentum in a different way that we're not used to. So, um, so we're ready to go on the road, um, but we have a lot of bigger shows coming up. So we gotta, you know, we gotta sort of save our um, save our fuel in case we get the bigger opportunities that we're hoping for. For sure. Um, so a couple things you mentioned there, like really kind of piqued some questions for me, like the, um, how, how you kind of approached building this band. And I think this is something that me in my younger years, I always kind of hated the idea of, but now that I'm older and it, it, have been more experienced in the music scene, it's kind of come to light that this is actually a really good way of working. And, um, not to talk about my own band, but I actually built my own band in a, in a extremely similar fashion. Um, I had come to the point where, you know, you find a bunch of people who like you're cool with and like they're talented musicians, you got all the components and you're like, cool, well, let's start a band. Everyone gets in a room and then it just either goes no direction or, you know, everyone just starts jamming and it gets to be so far away from, you know, the intended you know, the intended style of music kind of goes. So after dealing with that for years, I eventually was like, you know what, I'm going to write an album myself and find people that want to play this music and then, you know, put out a, a whatever bullshit EP and then move on from there where the band kind of evolves from that. And it's kind of interesting that you follow that path because, you know, as I mentioned in my younger years, definitely when you read like, oh, so-and-so just writes everything, I'm like, well, that's kind of dumb. You know, why is one guy just doing everything in the band? You know, they're supposed to be a band and collaborative. But you realize that, I think what I realize is that you actually get more accomplished quicker when you do, you know, uh, you have a set goal, you, you start writing songs, and you kind of have a sound, and then you just build off that. And, of course, um, you know, the ultimate goal from that is the members that you do bring into the band get it and then you would kind of expand on that sound and kind of make it their own and it kind of seems like that might have been kind of the a little bit of the the route you guys took yeah i mean i think the i think our band is very congressional in nature like diplomatic diplomatic yeah yeah i i i may i may steer the band in the initial stages but there are plenty of times, even now, where we're writing songs, and Tyler would be like, "Well, we're not going to work on that one today." <laughs> and I'm like, 
And that if it's a new song that I really want to work on, but Tyler's like, I'm not going to work on it, then it's not going to make the album. Like, that's the reality. And, but that's good. Like, that's a filter. And, mm-hmm. and I'll also, like, when I, he, he will tell you, when I send him demos, I send him demos with when I'm, you know, drunk or high and writing these drum lines. I'm like, these drums are great. <laughs> and I send him it. And he's like, I love this, except the drums are fucking stupid. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. And, My drummer hates me for that, too, because I demo. Yeah. I de- like I've, I'm really adept at programming drums nowadays. Like, I can do it, like, scary fast. So yep. the ideas, like, they just come out, and I send him things. He's like, cool, that's great, but now I already have an opinion of what a drum beat could be over this, and now I don't want to fuck with it. It's like, God damn it. All right, fair enough. <laughs> yeah, I think Tyler... It, the nice thing I'll let him speak for himself is that he can just write off my drum ideas right away, <laughs> and he'll you you'll usually say, "Okay, now send me that song with a metronome and no drums, <laughs> with a click and no drums." Yep. Yeah, I have my inbox is full of that email from from my drummer. <laughs> all of all of the drums I write sound like the Mars Volta drummer, right. and he's like, "You motherfucker!" Like, <laughs> first of all, I would like to say I love Thomas Pridgeton, even though he's not the drummer of Mars Volta anymore. I do love him very much, but I am not Thomas Pridgeton, even close. <laughs> so, um, a little more backstory between our relationship, uh, Ben Thomas. and myself. The way that we we met was working at a large music retailer. Ooh. It rhymes with Schmatar Schmenter. Oh, that and, place. Yeah, fuck that place. Anyway, um... I remember one day, because I worked in the drum shop, even as a guitar player, because I had teched for a good friend of mine for a long time. <clears throat> so I knew a lot about drums, and I played a little bit. But in any case, I remember um, it was always a uh, exciting day when the new drummer, uh, the drum magazine would come out. Oh, Modern Drummer. Modern Drummer. Yep. And so we yep. would, would always read it the first day. And I remember they did a big cover um, for the drummer of AFI. I think his name is Adam something anyway that is you know it's it doesn't matter but anyways so uh his main quote in that interview has always stuck with me he said I feel that I need to be more creative with the things that I can do rather the things that I can't and he likened it to being able to color with all of the colors in a crayon box rather than just a few he said that you know the less colors that you have, it, it forces you to be more creative with what you what is available to you. Yeah. And so that kind of curbed my uh, expectation of myself because I knew that if somebody who was ex- as successful as the drummer of AFI um, could do what he does and without being able to, you know, play 30 second notes with his left foot, that that I could probably do something similar. Yeah. So, well, there's, I think there's a lot to be said about that and that, that, that it's super nerdy, but like when you look at like, like the size of a drummer's kit, right? Okay. Like mm-hmm. you play a classic rock kit, kit, snare, rack, tom, floor, tom, couple cymbals, you know? And <clears throat> I, I remember a, a drummer I played with in a band in high school said this to me. He's like, yeah, it's cool. Like I've got two drum kits now and I put it together and I built a mega kit, but I feel like I'm just still playing the same fill. When right. I had half the drums, you know, and I think some of my favorite drummers are like super minimalist setups. Um, yep. uh, <clears throat> Mo Carlson, the original drummer for Protest the Hero, is probably one of my greatest examples of that because that band is 
you know, fretboard acrobatics and his drumming was, was no exception, but the kid played a, a punk kit. Right. Like there'd be times he'd have a main crash, a ride and a China, two toms and a kick, you know, snare, like, and he was, you know, making it sound like he had a 30 piece kit, you know? Right. Um, and yeah, it's interesting you say that painting with all the colors, what you have, I feel like, you know, when you have less stuff to hit, you can, you know, what you're actually hitting becomes more meaningful in the way you play it. You're not just, you know, hitting, every, you know, a different symbol at the same velocity. You're actually putting something into each hit on the same symbol. Well, and everybody who knows how to count can play a simple rock and roll beat, mm-hmm. right? Like you can teach that to pretty any, pretty much anybody who has, you know, dexterity in their, in their three limbs. Right. Um, but how you play it, is a totally different thing. And so Chad Smith is, is one of my favorite drummers. I'm not a huge red hot chili peppers fan, but I'm a really big Chad Smith fan because that guy, I think Ian, uh, Ian pace, the, the drummer of deep purple, he gave him one of the best compliments I've ever heard of a drummer. He said that, you know, Chad isn't the flashiest drummer, but every time you hear him play, you can't help but tap your foot. And I think as a drummer, that's my goal is not for people after the show to be like, holy fuck, that was the craziest drum performance I've ever seen in my life. Yeah. I just, I just want to see people in the audience move. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, totally. And that's my responsibility, you know? So I, I take that very seriously and I, that's where I push myself as far as my, um, my technical proficiency is to be able to play in a way that people want to move to it. Not necessarily, you know, want to jack me off after the show and say, holy shit, that was a crazy 30 second note fill that you just played. Yeah. You know what I mean? No, totally. And I think there's, uh, you know, there's in the simplicity, the simplicity thing of side of things, you know, it doesn't necessarily, um, you know, a well-played simple fill is always going to trump a, 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 you know, a, a sloppily played something that's fast. Right. Um, you know, there's a uh, less we is talk, more. We talk a lot about, uh, bands that are and and admittedly after shows we'll get high and watch like bear coven which is <laughs> have the, you ever heard of bear coven ben i haven't please send oh it to my me. god bear coven is so good <laughs> you have to listen to them all right so yeah. there is like uh oh what's that band uh bring me the horizon oh uh, yes yeah that's so so that's a band that i would put firmly in the uh, musical masturbation care uh, category it's like hey look at we what we can do and bear coven is not like Hey, look at we, what we can do. It's like, allow me to part the heavens. Yeah. <laughs> I'm about to fuck your soul. And you're like, holy shit. Calm down. Um, I, I'm still obsessed with the old drummer for the 68. I think he's not with the band anymore, uh, Michael McClellan. Um, and he played, just to go full drum nerd for your listeners, he played a fucking three-piece. A kick, a snare, and a low tom. And then, I think I've showed you a ride and a hi-hat. That's it. And that is fucking it. Like classic jazz kit. That's awesome. But they are a hard, hard, hard two-piece. All the hard. But he was very, very good. Like he could do things with that ride and with those and with those hi-hats. And his hi-hat separation was astronomically big. So he used his hi-hats as his crashes also because he had huge hi-hats. Yeah. Anyway, I love... Those are my favorites. Like I, I don't know. No offense to Rush, but fuck Rush, dude. Like you don't need all that shit. Like, you know. I still love Rush, but for different. You still like Rush? I, do. <laughs> I, I mean, you know, to be honest, when I was a, a young lad learning to to play the drums, uh, 
my uncle, as a part of my compensation for mowing his lawn, used to let me like dig through his pile of cassettes and borrow one for uh, you know a week at a time until you know I or tell however long it took till I had to mow his lawn again. And he used to. You see, like, all right, you know, grab one, man. Like, even if you're not into it, just, like, pick something. Like, expand your music, you know? And one of the first ones I ever grabbed was Rush Moving Pictures. Yeah. That is why I learned <laughs> to play drums. And I used to air drum to that for hours. And that's how I learned to play drums, really. Because by the time I had, I had, like, figured out what the hell was going on with each limb. And eventually, uh, when I, you know, got old enough to be in high school band and actually sat behind in a full drum kit. I was like, oh yeah, I know what I'm doing. Almost. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, great album. Great album. Isn't um, it weird too? My main thing, I play, when we're not rehearsing, I play guitar probably somewhere between 10 and 12 hours a week outside of rehearsal. Um, and I play drums the same amount. <laughs> <laughs> very, very poorly. Um, and I had Tyler recently bring back my old Gretsch kit that he had at his house. And I'm like, oh, fuck, I'm going to put in like 20 hours a week. <laughs> Just like doing uh, the main thing I do on your kit, which is weird, is I is I take the most complex jazz beats and I try to go down and learn them. And like I can't. But it's super it's fun to try to I'm like, how the fuck do they get their fucking hands to do that shit? Anyway, moving on, moving on. <laughs> Right on. Uh, so why don't we switch gears a bit um, and kind of get into uh, talking about the album itself that you guys just released? I think you, I think you guys ended up doing eleven tracks, yeah. That sounds right. Ten, eleven, something like that. It's a number. Um, Eight made. Well, nine made the album. Nine made the album. Nine yeah, made that's... the album. Okay. Okay. Right on. Uh, so. With the with the writing of the album, um, did you guys have a lot of these songs kind of kind of you know like bands do like you write an EP you release it and then you just kind of just keep writing songs um, and you know and then eventually like oh well we got ten we might as well put it out did you guys kind of like just build a catalog and kind of sort through it or did you guys you know when you started the writing process for this was it a, a, like a an actual like cool we're gonna actually write an album now this is you know, a sound that we're trying to chase with it. This is what we're trying to achieve. Um, was it more organic or did you guys actually like set out to cool? We're going to write an album. It was, I think we could characterize it as reluctantly organic. Yeah. It, I mean, we set, we set no expectation. We wanted to record a single and we did that. And then we said, whatever happens after that is going to happen. So if it was a four song EP, or if it was an album, we didn't really know. So kind of our process and kind of what makes the album is something that is successful live. So we'll write something, we'll rehearse it, we'll play it live, depending on how it feels live and how it's received, then we will go and try to track it. And even then, it, it needs to make a sort of um, impact with the two of us before we're, we're even going to consider it for, for the album. And one song that is a great example of that is a song that we had called City Girl, um, which we love playing live, but we tried to record it and it just it didn't come through uh, in the way that we wanted it to. So we scrapped it. So um, it just kind of ended up being that the eight songs that we felt the strongest about. And then we did an acoustic version of one of our, our fan favorites, which is one of our favorites, too. Um, and that's it, it just like like Elijah said, it just kind of happened you know, as cliche as it is, it happened organically. Yeah, we tried to not do it organically. We tried to plan it out. 
Mm. Actually, I think our initial plan was to do like two or three EPs. And we were like, okay, we'll release it throughout the year and we'll build whatever. We'll build um, some sort of anticipation. And um, and when the songs came together, when we started, so we went to... We went to a studio for part of the album, then we recorded in our studio for part of the album, and then when it all came together, the eight songs that felt finished um, felt like they belonged together. Um, and I hate that too because it sounds it sounds sort of like I don't know, like flippant and artistically erudite to to like rely on I don't know the the changing of the tides or something, but. It, there is no other way to explain it. Like we couldn't have planned it the way that it came out. I wish we could have split it up into three separate entities that made sense together, but these eight songs just made sense together. Maybe it was the time that we wrote them together. Maybe it was the way that we recorded them. Um, but there was, there was no other way for it to, to come about. And, um, I mean, it seems, it seems to have worked out so far. It's making a, a splash, a small splash in the indie world, but a splash nonetheless. So, <laughs> oh, for sure. Uh, so, I mean, the that you know, the idea of kind of like splitting the album up into like three smaller pieces, like that's something that I've often thought about with bands as well, and y- even my own. Um, and I think one of the things that kind of like lends to is like our our current, the like the current state of album cycles. Yeah, you know, bands are you know every two years there's an album, two and a half. You know, if you're lazy, um, I'm looking at certain bands right now. I'm not going to name names, but <laughs> three years before albums is unacceptable. Um, but you know, like when you look back at like you look back at bands like like Black Sabbath, right? Like, as a great example, Led Zeppelin, like the classic rock bands and like the ones that are really like pioneered. You know, a lot of what people try to emulate nowadays, they, you know, you look at their catalog and it's literally one album in a, a year, yeah. you know? Um, and, and it's interesting because they're like, you know, they're, a lot of them are pretty substantial albums. You know, will be 12, 13 tracks, things like that. And I think, I think today, while I would love all of my favorite bands to release like one album a year, like, you know, in my, in my head, I'm like, yeah, just get your shit together and write an album, you know, just do it. Um, but I think, the other thing that I think about that kind of contradicts that is like you you think about the uh, the attention span of today's current audience, right? If you l- released a four or five song EP once a year, you know you might capture your audience, right? But if you release you know a thirteen song you know epic or like in you know some bands cases that are really progressive, you know like a double album every year, um, you know would that almost be too much content? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, and I. In talking with our, I I was in Seattle last weekend. Yeah, it was last weekend um, with our manager, and we were talking a lot about that with uh, some music industry compatriots. And they said the reason that that doesn't happen anymore is because no band can make money off of album sales. Right. It doesn't happen. You're right. not. You cannot make a living off of album sales. So there is no. There's no compulsion or compunction. I don't know which is the proper verb there to. Um, to record an album and put it out and then do, you know, ACDC in the sixties and seventies, they would put out an album and they would tour hard, but they tour hard for three months. Mm-hmm. That's it. Bands. Now you put out an album and you tour nonstop for two years. Yep. Yep. And that's, that's, 
that's to pay your bills. Right. And this isn't me bemoaning necessarily the state of the music industry because the state of the music industry is what it is and there's no reason to necessarily bitch about it. But um, there, there is also no, there's no, there, it doesn't make business sense to push an album out. And in many senses, even with ACDC, and I hope that you don't get, you know, uh, Twitter murdered over this, <laughs> but even with ACDC, there are slumps in their albums. Sure. There's stuff where I'm like, oh, come on, guys. You're just spinning the wheels here. Right, right, right. Where well, they, were, they were meeting the, the parameters of their their contracts. You yeah. Know? So, and that's the, we can get into a full conversation about the music industry as we've kind of touched on. But the way that music is consumed now is that you have a social media presence. And then people go and listen to one or two of your songs on their Spotify or... Uh, Facebook or whatever or however they they consume their music. So it's not like you know, and we're going to date ourselves a little bit here. But when we were kids and we knew that the new Foo Fighters record was coming out, and then we we rushed to the record store and we bought the the new Foo yep. Fighters record. Yep. You know, now it's oh, I heard this really cool band. Like we just said, you need to check out Bear Coven. So what are you going to do after this? You're going to go onto Spotify and you're going to you know look at Bear Coven and yep. you're going to pick their most played song and you're going to play their most played song yep. and then maybe you might listen to a second one if you like it. Yeah. That's how music is consumed now. Yeah. So you have to you have to fall into into suit in the same way as an artist of producing content that is consumable on that level. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. And. 10 to 11 singles is what you want. Yeah. All well, the time. Well, so I, you know, kind of riffing It sounds on... like we're complaining. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I, don't get me wrong. I mean, I have all the, I definitely have all the same thoughts about it. Um, and it's, and I don't know, I, a lot of people will, will, especially friends of mine who are in bands will, you know, bemoan about the whole current state of, of the music industry but to me it's it's a very exciting frontier because there's so much of it that is unexplored you know like there are a few bands i can think of that are that i'm like oh great you know you guys have nailed uh how you build a platform in the current you know i guess meta of of the music industry you know there there are bands that have done it really really well and it's but when you really look at that there's only a handful you know so many bands are still i guess quote unquote making it the old-fashioned way you know by kind of grinding it out and touring and things like that but i i know i i I guess i choose to look at it as much as i want to complain about it i also am really really excited excited by it because there's so much stuff that hasn't been done yet there's so much you know so much of this territory where i'm like wow like i like the audience is super accessible now you just have to learn how to you know access them and that was the weird thing with this album. We just learned sort of the ins and outs of promotion and and who to work with and how. And then all of a sudden, we're, the the downside, I, I don't even know if it's a downside. The, the, the other side to that is you can't really decide what's going to be popular. It's very, it's very audience-based. We got very lucky that the, the single that we made a video for became right before the video came out, became a very popular song on Spotify. Um, but, I mean, God forbid it would have been any of, <laughs> any of the other songs. Right. Uh, then, we, then we would have been up shit creek. But um, it, it, what I think people, and especially musicians, 
and especially working successful label supported musicians don't appreciate is that there was like a plethora of really good bands in the 60s and 70s and 80s and 90s and before that but obviously you know i'm i'm speaking in in the modern american artistic uh, milieu that never got heard because there was no way to hear them like in the 60s and 70s and 80s you couldn't get into a studio and record an album for less than a thousand dollars. Yeah, yeah. That changed that. in the '90s, and and in the late '90s and early 2000s is when it it changed from not only could you record an album, but you could put it out. And by 2008, 2009, for somewhere around for somewhere around a thousand dollars. You could build your own studio in your fucking house and you could record an album, you know, pay somebody else a couple thousand dollars to mix it and and put it out. Yeah. And you would have a competitive album. Yep. And well, and that's almost the expectation of the climate now. Right. Yeah. It's like that's how Katy Perry was discovered. That's how Justin Bieber was discovered. Um, to name obviously two of the biggest pop stars of our of the current generation, but they they did they DIY'd their shit until they made a certain amount of a following on social media, and then they got picked up, and yeah. then now they're fucking superstars. You know what I mean? So to kind of bring it back to the Sacramento scene um, and talking about you know the how people make it now is you know a great example of that is Hobo Johnson. Mm-hmm. You know, that motherfucker is a crazy, genuine guy, and I love his music, but I'm very sincere in saying that I don't get it. Like, if you heard a Hobo Johnson track, I, to me, I wouldn't be like, oh, this, is, this, is, this has to be the most popular rap music coming out of Sacramento right now. I wouldn't think that. But that guy is such a cultural icon that people are so attracted to that, and he created such a, such a following that way, and now he's fucking crazy successful. And it makes me so, um, I don't know, just uh, almost in awe of what people can do now, like we were saying, with with a little amount of overhead and a lot of know-how as far as it, it, it is to to reach people. I think I think the fav- my favorite thing about him and what is really indicative, especially maybe it's maybe it's specific to Sacramento, but I I would I would guess that it's more specific to like Central Valley, Northern California, is that. He is genuine and people can smell bullshit now because the world and I'm making, you know, gross generalizations, but the the most of what we consume on a daily basis is just posturing and and Frank doesn't or Hobo Johnson, but Frank Frank doesn't posture like he doesn't give a shit. He doesn't care what you think. Um, He's going to tell you exactly what what's on his mind. And he doesn't, I mean, I don't know. I don't want to analyze his music or anything, but he is, he's saying exactly what he thinks in the, he writes songs about his fucking mom. You know, I love my mom too. And I listen to that song and I'm like, I don't know how he is this popular, but I really like this song. And then, and then it goes the full circle. I'm like, I really like this song because I really like my mom, even though we don't get along. Oh shit. Hobo Johnson just wrote this song. That's why he's popular. Yeah, that is something, and that's something that we try to aim at too. Is what can we do 
to not posture? How can we tell people this is what we actually think? Um, we're not putting on an act. What you're paying for when you come to a show, what I want to pay for um, is not... Um, bullshit. It's not bullshit. Like, the time... The time of Slipknot, and I was a huge Slipknot fan. Still am. No, no Iowa, hate. I'll, I'll to come Slipknot. out. I, Iowa cannot be fucked with. Yeah. <laughs> I was a huge Slipknot fan, but the time of Slipknot and and Guar, and even, God forbid, I apologize if you get a Twitter backlash, Flaming Lips, that time's over. Yeah. No, I don't care about it anymore. I don't care about the pomp and circumstance. And I don't think anybody else does either because our whole life is pomp and circumstance. You don't... Instagram has has told the world that everybody's relationship is perfect and everybody's working to lose weight and everybody just redecorated their fucking den and everything is perfectly wonderful. And their dinner is the most delicious. Oh ever. my god, this dinner, these stuffed whatevers. But that totally proves the point in that people don't go to shows anymore to see a show. They go to a show to fucking connect. Yeah, that's yes. what they want. Yes. And it's so crazy. Are They're the like, please cry in front of me! <laughs> the best shows that we've ever played are for a smaller crowd that really dig our shit and they dig the message that we're presenting. And you know, we've played bigger shows before where a lot of people are and they're, you know, on their phones or, or paying attention to They're not fucking pass. Instagramming. Right. <laughs> they're, they're Instagramming the show. And I would much rather play to five people who give a fuck than 500 who don't. Yeah. Every day. That's a... And I really that's like that you mentioned that. No, I really like... <laughs> no, I really like that you mentioned that. Like, um, in kind of owing a little bit back to the, 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 the you know, how little overhead you actually have nowadays to like even make make an album like rick rubin said uh something to the effect of you know like when pro tools came onto the scene like it it kind of allowed people who who didn't have any business in the music industry to have a voice yeah you know in the music industry so benny real quick did you watch the uh may it stay documentary on hbo about the avid brothers i haven't i didn't know that was a thing you need to watch it so it's it's rick rubin Um, okay but one of the most, uh, um, I don't know, emotionally dynamic parts of that documentary, not to not to give it away, but um, they recorded this song that uh, Seth Avit uh, wrote about uh, going through a divorce. Okay. And so, um, and there was a couple other ones that are really heavy. But anyway, so they walk out of the studio and, you know, and the Avit brothers are known for being a, a genuine band and, and singing and writing lyrics that are very genuine, but... Um, they kind of struggle with this um, idea of bearing their very intimate souls to the masses, you know, that they're here to sell basically their secrets. And it's an interesting thing to look at a very, very popular band and, you know, think that they worry about what they're putting on their record as far as content, uh, lyrically, not just musically, because really it, it takes an emotional toll on them, you know. Mm-hmm. But they know that that's what their people want. You know, just like we were talking about, they, they want to connect with the music and they, they know that their people aren't going to take bullshit. If they write a really happy song about whatever, they know that, that it's bullshit and they can smell it. You know, Right, right. Um, and it's really interesting to see that a, a band on that level 
still struggles with what they're putting out and what they're emulating as far as their brand. Right. Because it really is a vulnerable place to come from. You no, know, like for sure. And it's and it I think and I think I think some of that comes down to like how much do you trust your audience? Absolutely. To go to because go along. You, you can't be responsible for the people who like your music or who translate it one way or the other. Right. Like, you know, our song Arkansas, that is everybody's favorite fucking song. And it is literally like for me, only playing drums, it takes an emotional toll on me playing that oh, song. God. And not not just for somebody who wrote it literally about his divorce. Yeah, it it exhumes my soul every time. I think it. <laughs> I'm like, I hope you like this because I'm gonna go get really drink and I'm drunk and cry in the corner after this. So, right. fucking enjoy this shit, you sons of bitches. But it, but at the same time, it it makes it worth it that people connect with it. Yeah. On on whatever level, because like you said, you can't control your audience, you can't control how you're perceived, but you want some sort of genuine reaction, even if it's not the reaction that you're hoping for. It's so weird, too, because I look at our album, and I think, in my opinion, musically, the best song on that album is the opener, is Walk on Water. That's my favorite to play. We always open with that. And the song that is resonating right now is Knife and Agenda, which is a classically straightforward rock song. And, and it is far more genuine than Walk on Water because it's literally about my life and about my tendency to date women who are terribly bad for me. <laughs> and I think a lot of guys are like, yeah, I can. Or a lot of people are like, yeah, I can, I can relate to meeting someone who's super pretty who you're like, well, I want to date them. Uh, they might murder me, but fuck it. Fuck it. I'm going to take a chance. What's uh let's talk about this co- cocktail for uh for a second. I mean, you're in a copper glass. I mean, is that a uh are we doing Moscow mules here? Is this what's uh, happening? Yeah, we are cuz we're fancy AF. <laughs> have you ever yeah. had a uh have you ever had a whiskey mule? Uh, it's called a horse's neck. <laughs> <laughs> There's a really good band in Sacramento called Horse's Neck. Yeah, so love Horse's band. Neck is so good. is is whiskey, ginger beer and lemon. Mhm. And a Moscow Mule is vodka, ginger vodka. beer, and lime. But yes, I, I'm a huge whiskey fan, so I've done both. But vodka is less calories, and I'm trying to be a rock star. So there. I hear you. It's when... Uh, oh, fuck you, dude. You weighed 98 pounds soaking wet. <laughs> Eat shit. I've gotten so... I've gained so much weight working a fucking desk job. I hate life. I fucking hate yeah, it. Yeah, you're huge, man. You should go to Jenny Craig, definitely. Working on it. Get a coach. I'm trying to get a, if Jenny Craig could sponsor this this episode, that'd be fucking. <laughs> <laughs> we're 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 doing some we're doing some marketing there. Back to the album a little bit. Like one of the last things I wanted to talk about was um of the album itself. Um, uh, Tyler, you had texted me or messaged me like some time ago, and I was kind of asking you how uh how your time in the in the studio was when you guys uh, did the I you guys went in with someone uh. You rented actually like you know had someone record you and like you did through this process and you mentioned it was kind of a kind of a they had to break us down and build us back up kind of process. Yes. Um, well, more me than anybody else, but yeah. Uh, what went into that? Well, so we we have a really good friend named Greg Griggs who is a producer uh, songwriter uh, based in Virginia. And we uh, was he was a, he's a good friend of Elijah's, and then obviously I met him through Elijah, and then uh, so he lived out here. His his girlfriend was going to Davis, and then uh, when she graduated, they moved back to the East Coast. 
But in any case, so when we thought about recording with someone, working with a producer, he was the first person that came to mind. Um, so we, we talked to him about it and, and got you know the money together and got him out here. And so we decided to uh, work at Gold Standard Studios, uh, Ira Skinner's place uh, in, in uh, Sacramento, which is a great studio. But in any case, we did some pre-production, but it was, you know, states away, obviously. So when we got into the studio, um, we did a lot of things uh, sort of there and on the spot. And um, as any music or musician will tell you, uh, you know, playing music is mostly muscle memory. So I had been playing drum parts um, the same way for three months. And then we got into the studio and he wanted something different. And it just wasn't my body wasn't reacting in the way that I wanted it to in real time. Mm. Um, so it was an excellent learning experience. It was one of those things that kind of took, I think, both of us to a different place as musicians, as recording musicians. Um, but it made me feel about as big as an ant and not in a way that is talking derogatorily about gray at all. He was great. Um, I loved the experience, um, after it was done, but, uh, during it was, it was really painful. And just because I knew that I could do it, I just couldn't do it as quickly or as proficiently or as, um, professionally as I wanted to. Um, and so we ended up taking basically, you know, verse by verse, uh, section by section, fill by fill, um, you know, and recorded it that way. And at that time, I, I wasn't 100% comfortable recording to a click, which is hilarious as a drummer. Um, but I, you know, through that experience, now I feel like I'm more than comfortable recording to a click and I can, if I'm comfortable with a drum part, I can, I can typically get through a song um, start to finish and, and feel pretty good about it. So you guys play with the click live now. Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 Cool. Yeah, no. Um, and it was one of those things that I, I resisted for the longest time because as a guitar player, I'm all about feel, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, and the, you know, it was always the drummer's responsibility to keep time. Um, so when I started in this project, I was like, there's no fucking way that I'm playing to a click there. It's just going to suck the life out of it. And I researched it for a long time and, um, I think my get out of jail free card was I found out that Jimmy, Ch uh, Jimmy Chamberlain doesn't play with a click. And I was like, well, if fucking Jimmy Chamberlain doesn't play with a click. Then I don't have to. He's also Jimmy fucking Chamberlain. He's also, if we're going to, if we're going to get human into metronome. It. Right. But it was just in my mind. It was the way that I he was just playing with the click. No, he absolutely he invented the, he wrote the word click. Right. So, and well, and John Bonham didn't either, but you know, he died probably before those were made available to drummers playing live. But in any case, um, so I, find, I also don't actively compare myself to Prince. Right. So. <laughs> but it, it finally came down to where I just needed to. We started practicing with the click, and I finally got to a place where I was comfortable with it. And then what we actually did is we put the click in both of our ears. So now it's not just totally my responsibility. Elijah can hear the, the click as well. So that, that helps out a ton um, that we're both, um, you know, sticking to something. So. But anyway, so back to the recording experience, it was one of those things that we went in thinking one thing and we came out with something completely different. But I, I love that song. When, when I listen to it, it makes me think about um, what it takes to be a, a, a good player, you know. Yeah. And I think that a lot of people think that if you have a little bit of a talent, you have a good song that you can record and make something sound great. And it's just not true. There's um, there's lots of things that, that go into recording a great song and Gray 
fuck, man. He pulled that out of us out of places that I didn't think that he could. And he heard things that I never thought that anybody would hear. And we didn't get away with shit. We didn't get away with shit. If I was a millisecond late on a snare hit, he would hear it and he would make me do it again. You yeah. know, um, so it, it got to the place. And I remember um, listening to um, Nate and Taylor talk about recording um, the color and the shape. And I forget the producer that they worked with, but it was the same thing. Like they thought that they were, you know, they'd been they'd made a record with the Foo Fighters. Was it Butch? No, it wasn't Butch. No, it wasn't Butch yet. Um, but so when they recorded the color and the shape and they came back and, and he was like, you know, you guys need to be better. And they were like, we're the fucking Foo Fighters, you know? So it's not just, it's not just people at our, at our level. I think that all, all musicians get to a place where they, they need to be pushed and they need to be, um, you know, their, their shit held to the fire, so to speak. And, and that definitely happened to us. And, it was great that it happened with Gray because we're all comfortable with him and he's comfortable telling us, like, you need to be better. And so, you know, I, I wouldn't give up that experience for the world. Yeah, it was great, yeah. Um, with that, uh, as some, so someone like myself, like, I'm definitely... Uh, what I think, when, I, when, I, when I think of uh, working with a producer, you know, I almost immediately start to have an anxiety attack because, you know, in the back of my head, they're going to... You know, my favorite riff, the one that I like hold most dear is the one that they're going to be like, eh, that's kind of shit. You should maybe work with that a little bit. Um, you know, I you hear a lot of bands talk about, you know, struggling with working for a producer for the first time and kind of like letting go of the reins, uh, so to speak. And it's like, you know, allowing yourself to be open to new to new ideas about a song you wrote. Um Was that kind of was that kind of refreshing in a way that it kind of like sp- uh, gave you new ideas about the rest of the album? I mean, I think it's working with producers a lot like working with a manager in that you have to accept that when you're, so when you're working with a manager, uh, you're working with, in our instance, a third member of the band. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so Jess's responsibilities are not her responsibility sole. Uh, but they are so Tyler and I do a lot of the, lo- the logistics, but her purview is the logistics. When you're working with a producer, the landing is his purview. Mm-hmm. So you can think whatever you're going to think, but what you're hiring a producer to do is to tell you how your how your art's going to land. Right, and. And if you have a really good producer who has the reason you hire somebody who has hits, the reason you hire a producer who works in a specific genre or industry is because their ear is more representative of the people that this music is going to hit. And oftentimes with so with Tyler's performance, a lot of Gray's feedback was timing and perfection with my performance a lot of Gray's feedback was like, I remember, so there was some of the stuff that was in the vocal booth and there was some stuff that he would pull me aside and he was like, I just don't believe what you're saying right now. And I'm like, I don't know what to do with that information except to go back and to believe it more. Yeah. Rewrite a lyric. He was like this lyric. I don't buy this lyric at all. So to, to your question, Yes, it's a very real possibility that somebody could come back and be like, 
hey, especially your producer could say, hey, you know, I know that you're in love with this riff or this progression or whatever, um, but you're musically masturbating right now. Right. Yeah. Needlessly complex. <laughs> yeah. You're just showing off. And, and if there's anything that someone dislikes more than someone being disingenuous, it's someone being disingenuous and showing off at the same time. Sure, sure. And, and it's because music in, for the most part, uh, you know, outside of, you know, Coltrane or Snarky Puppy or Meshuggah, <laughs> music is, music is for everybody. And so if you make music that is pur- purposefully inaccessible, it's going to be inaccessible. <laughs> right. That's, that's the reality. So if you make something that's really difficult, and that's what I tend to do with the way that I meter and time my lyrics, Tyler can speak to this, is I'll write lyrics that are difficult to sing because I want to see if I can do it. And, and they're rhythmically complex. And one of the things that, that Gray did with this song especially was he said, just sing it. And he did this with all the other songs, not just the one we recorded and that he engineered, but all the ones that he produced. Because he produced, I think, four songs on the album. He was like, simplify this shit. Like, tell people what you mean in a way that they can understand it. So I don't, I don't think that there's a reason to be afraid of having your music produced as, as long as you understand that a good producer is coming from the point of view of your audience. Right. Which is a tough, you know, pill to swallow at sometimes. Yeah. Because you really get, you really love the shit that you play and that you write. And, and some of the parts of the songs that you think are really going to hit aren't, aren't that. Mm-mm. And a greatest example of that is I didn't think that Knife and Agenda, like I love that song. I did not think it was going to be the standout hood of the, of the record. Not I even close. Either. No, I didn't either. There are probably four songs that I thought that would have done better than that, and it it's it's the the song that people love. So you never know. You never know. So uh, I'll admit that I'm going to ask this question with a little bit of a uh, little bit of salt and shade, but um, <laughs> you guys uh, recorded uh, the rest of the album yourselves, and. Uh, yes pretty much did everything uh, in-house for the most part on the album. Will you ever be doing that again? <laughs> Recording uh, on our own? Yeah. Probably not. No. <laughs> as, some, as someone who has produced and recorded their own album, God damn it, I wish I could have somebody else do it. No, so the thing that I loved about recording it ourselves is that it was like, you know, do you have time on Tuesday? Yep, I have time on Tuesday. Okay, and then it was all set up, and I just showed up and did my shit, you know? Right. Um, whereas with, you know, you reserve a studio space, you have to be there at that time, you pay for it. You know, you're up against the clock, which is a psychological barrier, yep, right? Yep, yep. Um, so that was, the, the comfortability-wise, it's it's the most ideal situation. Um, but as a drummer, like, there's just no way to get drum sounds the way that you can in a studio you just I, sure. we don't have enough space um but i i love the drum sounds that we got but it, it could be better so probably what we'll do not to toot ben's horn <laughs> <laughs> since it's your podcast is probably what we will do is hire you to come in and do initial engineering on the sounds and mic placement just so tyler can come in and be like 
You ready? I'm just gonna hit record. <laughs> have fun. Have, a good, have fun at it. Well, Go for it. This this last record really solidified our process. So yeah. Now yeah. Our process down. It's gonna make it so much better. Yeah. Like, I know what I need as far as recording. I need a fucking click. Don't put any of my drums in my ears at all. And I will memorize my shit. And I will come in. And I'll fucking record it. That's yeah. how I record drums. Fair enough. And so that was the biggest thing at Gold Standard too. Was it was like, well, do you want to record to the backing track because that's what I was comfortable with? Yeah, but that made me a hair late. So now it's just like I just need a click. I need to sit down, practice my shit, get it so I can play it in my sleep, and then I come in and I do it. And I can't change shit on the fly. You know, that's that's how it has to be. And I hate that, that I'm not that pliable, but it really is that thing. Like, if you don't like a, a part that I'm playing, then I, I have to change it before I get into the, into the studio. It's just the way that it is, you know. Um, so last thing I kind of wanted to talk about um, uh, with you guys is you've got, I mean, it. Supreme Court nomination. Ugh. <laughs> just kidding. I'm going to drink my beer now. <laughs> I stand with her and with whiskey. <laughs> Amen to that. Um, so you guys, you guys kind of have a lot on your plate, uh, on your plate right now. You guys are, you know, the album just dropped. So you guys are, you know, getting a lot of shows booked. You got videos happening and things like that. Um, I know that you guys recently linked up with, uh, like a band manager as right. well um and you guys have been uh doing a lot with your with your marketing game i mean i think one thing a lot of bands can definitely learn from is um from other bands is how they market themselves and how they you know leverage social media uh, you know youtube and any any other medium that you have and um i wonder if you guys could talk a little bit about kind of how that process has been with you know bringing in a band manager how did you choose this person and you know where'd you guys kind of Oh, that's such a weird story. Yeah, yeah no, it's, it's kind of kismet. And we didn't set out to have a band manager because we... Which sounds like the bougiest statement ever. Yeah. We weren't uh, looking. Tell me another one. I've heard that before. It happened organically. <laughs> no, but Elijah found, found Jess on Instagram and messaged her and said, you know, hey, let's start a conversation. And, and she replied with, let's start a conversation. And that's all. Um, well, there... So she manages another really good band called Duke Evers, whom I love. Duke Evers, I followed them with our band account. And they're fucking awesome. They're fucking amazing. They followed us back. Then I saw that their manager was Jess from uh, Matrix Flex. So I followed Jess back. I followed Jess. See, it's all social media. She followed us back. Then I sent her a message saying, hey, we'd love to send you our music. And then she said, okay, send it to me. We sent it to her. She literally said, I am not looking to take on new clients right now. And I was like, we'll just listen to it. Right. And she said, okay. And then we didn't, we heard nothing. It was like fucking crickets for a month, probably. Right. And then I sent her another message from our Gmail account, which... Tyler and I, we're an, we're an open book band. We're like an open marriage. <laughs> <laughs> I sent her another message, and I was like, hey, have you listened to it? She said, not yet. I'm going to dig into it soon. I'm sorry. And she's a very genuine person. And then it was like the next day, she wrote us back, and she was like, fuck. I fucking love you guys. And we're like, what? 
but still, but still with an air of hesitation. Yeah, but she, she was like, still, I don't know if like I'm the right person for you, blah, blah, blah. So we started talking with her about our goals and, and then we started doing a little bit and she was like, well, let me help you set up some, some tour dates. Let's get you up here. Um, and then it just sort of progressed from there until the point where like this last time that I went up to Seattle, she was like, okay, I want to work with you guys, but I have to meet at least one of you face to face to make sure that you're not shitheads. Lucky it was only two, a two person band. So it luckily it was only a two person <laughs> band. So I flew up there and, um, and I hope if Jess hears this, Jess, you are a beautiful, wonderful woman. But it was like meeting the mom I always wanted to have. <laughs> like, she was, she's like my career mom. Well, she does lists. Yeah, she's very list. Really into lists. She's list-oriented. Very, yeah. Do this. This is your list. Mm-hmm. And that's good. That works good for us because yeah. if you organize us, we, we can operate on that level. So, um, yeah. And it's been, it's been good. Um, I don't know. It's weird. I don't know how to connect all the dots because there's a lot of moving parts all of a sudden in the band. But, um, you know, good things are happening. Lots of people are listening to the new album, which is really nice. Yeah. We went from like 200 listeners to almost 6,000 listeners. Right. I don't, I don't know what that means. I don't know if it means anything necessarily. Well, but it's relative, right? Like, yeah. I mean, yeah. Fucking Cleopatra, who we're playing with um, in San Francisco. You're still coming to that show, right? Yes. Yeah. When is they it? Just, their <laughs> single just hit fucking 10 million listens on yeah. Spotify. 10 we were, million. We were super excited to hit 5,000. We were like, what? Right. 5,000 people have listened to our song? Dope. Right. 10 million? Holy shit. Uh, and, and that show hasn't sold out yet, so still, I don't, <laughs> I don't know what anything means anymore. <laughs> it's hard to say. But yeah, and it's, you know, to go back to the initial question about marketing, you know, when you get into a band, your number one priority is to make good music. But then that often gets overshadowed by wanting to get your music to people who want to listen to it. Yeah. Yep. And people don't understand how much that takes, how much money that costs, how time consuming that is. And it's really, it feels it feels almost like a betrayal to your art because you're trying to, you know, sell your music to, to people who are reluctant to listen to it. Mm-hmm. And, and that's a tough, that's a tough thing to think about as, especially as a young musician, you know, we've got a little perspective because we're, we're a little older and we've been in bands for a while. Um, but I could see how that would, that would make you jaded and pissed off real quick if you're yeah. 22 and just want people to listen to your music. You know what I mean? Like it's just, it just doesn't happen like that anymore. For sure. Um, all right. So last thing, guys, um, what's on your plate? It's soapbox time. Why don't you tell the tell the listeners what uh, what you got going on? You got shows. What uh, what's in the near future for you guys? Well, I'm gonna have tacos tonight. Yeah, we're, we're gonna have tacos. If you're not going to cheetahs, I'm gonna be really disappointed. Mm. Oh, oh shit! Is that the Steelers bar? No, cheetahs. Oh, that's it, yes. Uh, that that. That that was a long night. We'll talk about that some other time. <laughs> not on the not on the podcast. Um, no, no, uh, Cheetahs on twentieth uh, and R Street. Oh yeah, I know Cheetahs. Uh, okay, we're not. 
We're not going there tonight. <laughs> we're not. We're ungoing. <laughs> we can't afford the Uber. Oh, uh, neither. I, I can't either. <laughs> we're playing with uh, Cleopatra and White Lighter in um, San Francisco on the 20th. At Hotel Utah. Yeah, Hotel Utah. We're playing uh, two, maybe three Pacific Northwest states at the end of the month in October. Um, we are a headliner at the uh the rock november i can't remember the name of it this is terrible it's like rock vember it's a veterans fest. rock vember veterans day fest in lodi california um and then we're playing um we're supporting hot water music which is i still can't believe we're supporting hot water music in sacramento on december 1st and then on december 15th we're playing our uh our uh, winter formal uh, which is going to be a fucking blowout killer show with Sparks Across Darkness, Vinnie uh, Gadara and the Dead Birds, and uh, both of our new favorite band in the whole wide world, Shotgun Sawyer, which we've been trying to play with for like a year um, here in Sacramento. And then uh, the spring, I mean, we can't, we got a lot of big things in the spring that this sounds so stupid to talk about. We're not allowed to talk about it, it's so dumb. We're playing on Mars. Yeah, we're going to play in space. But there's a lot of big things happening in the spring that we're not supposed to talk about yet. So, um, But it'll be good. It'll be big, and we want to play for as many people as possible. And, yeah, we'll. Uh, my hope is that we will see the greater uh, United States and Europe and Asia. And then Ben Christopher is going to record our next album. Yep. So get ready for that. Ben is going to be our engineer because we clearly don't know what we're doing. <laughs> <laughs> you guys did not do a bad job. It was a good experience. All right, guys. Well, uh, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you, Ben. This has been good times. Um, and uh, that is that. That is that. Perfect. All right, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, that was the members Eli and Tyler from Cities You Wish You Were From. Uh, right now, we're going to go ahead and play a track off their latest album, Mixed and Mastered by Yours Truly. Uh, it's called Knife and Agenda. Enjoy.
you like what you heard, be sure to check out Cities You Wish You Were From. Uh, they're all over the internet, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, SoundCloud, Spotify, uh, up on iTunes as well. Be sure to check out that new album. Uh, thanks again, everyone. Pee pee. I'm gonna go pee too. Everybody pee. Oh, there's a little nod nodule. There we go. Come on. The different thread? No, it's the same thread. It's just hold that. Hold the shaft. Spin the shaft and shove it into the hole. Okay. Where can we put the shaft so we can both access it? Right there. Okay. It's spinning, though. It's spinning. Hey, are we off the record now? We are. Okay, we're going to start recording the new album in...